Good morning, good evening, or good night, depending on where you are listening. Welcome to all of our friends from across the multiverse, you wanderers through the time streams of existence. Welcome to the Bibliophile Adventures podcast, and a special welcome to all of our nerdy listeners on the Nerdy Legion. I have to warn you, this episode of the Bibliophile Adventures is going to get very nerdy. But then we are the Nerdy Legion. And uh, it reminds me of a lecturer back in my college days who used to say, well, listen, this is a pretty academic question, but let me remind you, we are sitting in an academic institution. So I make no apologies for uh, today's uh, derails and digressions and general off-topic ramblings. The book I want to delve into today is actually in three parts. It's called A Nomad of the Time Streams by Michael Moorcock. And this book was published in three parts over a couple of years in the 1970s. I believe the first uh, publication was 1971, so we're really taking it back. And the next two came out in 74 and then a bit later in 81. (laughs) So um, this was a little before my time. Michael Moorcock himself is a British author. He now lives, um, I think, mainly in the United States. I think it's fair to say. He was born in 1939, and he was mostly a Londoner, I think, for a lot of his life. He published his first novel in 1961, and uh, yeah, he was very precocious. He was an active uh, kid. He was a huge fan of science fiction. And from 1964 to 1980, he actually edited a sci-fi science fiction magazine called New Worlds. And he, he's a, he's a rock star. He actually, (laughs) he's a musician. He is a songwriter. He has played with, uh, Hawkwind and the Blue Oyster Cult. And I think maybe a couple more rock bands in between. Uh, he's written fiction. He's written nonfiction. He's big into history, and um, I'm very pleased to be talking about one of his books right now because a couple of things have coincided, a couple of extraordinary events uh, throughout the time streams which may have escaped your notice. Uh, One is a fantastic interview with Mr. Moorcock himself, uh, which you can find on the Appendix N Book Club podcast. I really love that podcast, and I really recommend it just generally. Uh, So a big shout out to Appendix N Book Club. Go check out the interview. It's been recently Mr. Moorcock's 80th birthday. If you were paying attention, yep, it's his 80th birthday this year. And uh, so he gave uh, a really fun and insightful interview where he went into depth about um, sci-fi writing, um... British politics, and um, we'll come back to that, and the business of entertainment, I guess. Talking of which, I don't know if this has hit the news or if it's become, uh, I don't know if people are aware of this, um, listeners, but there's a big uh, entertainment story here. There are going to be some TV series, at least one TV series based on Michael Moorcock stories. Um, the Elric stories are going to be the first, as far as I understood. And uh, this is just huge. If you're a fan of Michael Moorcock's uh, writings, yeah, here we go. Um, if you look, check out comicbook.com. And there was some news a couple of nights ago now. Uh, it's going to be an Elric series. Elric is one of Michael Moorcock's most popular characters. Uh, he's one of the big favorite characters in the Michael Moorcock multiverse. He was doing multiverse before there was a multiverse. And um, Elric of Melnibonet is one of his earliest characters, I want to say. Not his earliest character, maybe, uh, because he was a hugely prolific writer. He was writing tons of tons of stuff before he got to Elric. And if you imagine uh, Conan the Barbarian, Conan the Cimmerian, I'm sure there's a few fans of Conan listening to this. Uh, so if you try and imagine the opposite of Conan the Barbarian, that's Elric. So he uh, he is um, an albino 
guy. He's uh, okay. So he's he's male. He's very male. He's very kind of angsty. Um, so not not much like Conan, but still, you know, very male. Um, he's a little bit insecure, maybe um, in many ways, because he's uh, very weak due to his disease. Um, uh, albinism, I think, is not is not great for those who have to to deal with it. Um, and in the story, anyway, he is very physically weak, um, and he relies on all kinds of drugs um, and also magic to keep him even just able to function. And he has all these adventures and uh, relies on the magic sword that he's... Uh, I can't remember where he got this sword from. Anyway, he's got this sword, and it sort of... He has to kill things or people with this sword, uh, which is a very Conan-esque type of thing to do, but um, he needs to kill those guys to steal their souls. It's pretty grim. And uh, the power, the energy that the sword gets from that is shared with Elric to some extent. Um, And so that's the price that he pays for being able to have these adventures. It's really kind of dark, grim, um, sword and sorcery stuff with a few kind of light moments. Um, and it's really fun if you've been doing something like uh, NaNoWriMo, which I have been trying to do, really, and I would say probably failing to do. <laughs> I tried to follow uh, Michael Moorcock's own advice, which you can find pretty easily if you do a search using your favorite uh, search engine. You know, maybe something that doesn't store your search history. You might find uh, Michael Moorcock's advice on writing a novel in three days which it apparently it does seem that he followed many many times um he can write as quick as you like and um let me just say that it seems like he followed that formula to uh you know to a t so um in the elric stories you get you get, <laughs> you get this tragic hero he's got some um very strange restrictions on his abilities he's actually more of a kind of wizard type he's an intellectual guy really uh, but he's thrust into a lot of battles and such like and quests for various uh, magic items or he has to go and save somebody you know or he has to save the world we'll get to that in a minute too so uh, he picks up a sidekick along the way and he gets into some kind of terrible trouble you know he meets a monster or uh, there's an invasion happening, Uh, the forces of chaos are going to take over the world and turn everybody into weird creatures with tentacles, that that type of stuff. Yeah, and so Elric has to go and kick some ass, even though um, that's not really his thing, that's not in his wheelhouse, that's Elric, Um, and he gets depressed, very depressed, (laughs) which is, you know, not really what Conan would do. He's also sort of the opposite of Conan, um, in that Conan is a he is a clever guy. He's got a lot of street smarts and um, he works his way up from being a sort of rogue and a thief on the road, a gentleman of the road, to being a king and an emperor. And Elric is the exact opposite. He starts as a king and an emperor and he kind of works his way down the ladder, really, um, until he's really, um, you know, at the bottom uh, without spoiling the story too much. Yeah, so... um, that's Michael Moorcock, and if, you, if you've been following uh, NaNoWriMo, I've been trying to write a bit of a steampunk epic myself. Why steampunk and why an epic? Well, I totally failed to write a novel in three days, so that, that's why it was pretty funny. Um, but following the Moorcock method, I did discover that you can write an outline of a novel in one day <laughs> or less, which was really helpful. And so I did that. I wrote my outline and I decided this was going to be a steampunk story. I based the uh, characters and some of the plot line on a crazy idea that I've had since I was uh, in high school. A couple of crazy ideas, like half finished stories, which I wrote way back in the day on a Commodore computer uh, using a program called Wordsworth, a brilliant uh, word processor, which was a lot of fun to use. Uh, But I never finished those stories. And the steampunk angle kind of came in separately via um, Professor Elemental, getting um, an idea of who that is, actually. And before I was going to interview the professor for a previous episode, I wanted to do a bit of research. I was basically just trying to answer the question for myself, 
what is steampunk? And along the way, I discovered a couple of other, a couple more really good podcasts. Uh, the first one is the Clockwork Cabaret. Clockwork Cabaret is really worth checking out. The music on there is fantastic. Um, it's kind of billed as a steampunk radio experience, but it's basically like um, 20 minutes of really, really funny banter and chat about stuff <laughs> and uh, kind of storytelling, which is very much a Professor Elemental uh, thing as well. There's two ladies who do this. I think it's mainly those two, might be some other people. Um, and they do this fantastic um, DJ set of all kinds of weird music, uh, stuff that you've never heard of before, maybe very um, rare music that you heard and you liked, but you never really were able to get into because it's so far off the mainstream, and a lot of stuff just for fun. And those two ladies, Lady Atticop and Emma Davenport, I want to say, they are just so funny, uh, so interesting to listen to, and they play such great music. Um, they mentioned, or somehow I got from there to a podcast called... Um, this is going somewhere, by the way. I got along to a podcast called... Um, give me a second. Steampunk Dollhouse. So Steampunk Dollhouse is more of a book podcast. And there is a brilliant... Um, another lady who is a librarian and a scholar. And just an all-round interesting... Uh, person to hear she reviews all kinds of books and definitely can explain to you very well what is steampunk uh, so episode number one actually of her podcast was about something called the nomad of the time stream series and after i listened to that i was so impressed i thought okay i i need to read this book so i did i ordered it up pretty quick um you can get this book now very cheap it is out in many editions. I have here an edition by Orion Books, and they published it as part of their huge series of Eternal Champion uh, stories. So Michael Moorcock wrote these books uh, very quickly, as many pulp authors do or have done in the past. And then maybe what differentiates him from those authors quite strongly is that he edited his books, <laughs> not immediately, but um, he has rewritten and re-edited his books over the years so strongly that now they kind of form almost totally different stories, not in terms of what happens really, maybe a little bit. The characters certainly changed and the context has changed. So he's got this huge multiverse. If you think about uh, comic universes or movie franchises, stuff like that, Michael Moorcock was doing that before it was a thing, and he had so many characters, just huge numbers of characters, and now they're all linked together, I think ma mainly, basically by his efforts, into this giant arc of uh, multiple books, uh, probably way more than your typical uh, doorstopper fantasy series in the end, because uh, he did write a lot of them, and he tied up a lot of loose ends, um, Fantasy stories, especially pulp stories, have a pile of loose ends. So it's great for that kind of thing. And he managed to tie them up um, in a very good way, in a in a cool way, in a fun way. Um, he's definitely an action writer. He loves to have things happening on the page. But he's also very, very philosophical. Sorry, just taking a sip of this excellent um, Berliner Weisse uh, with a bit of raspberry in there. So... Michael Moorcock's multiverse is about uh, the struggle between law and chaos. And uh, like in a lot of the Appendix N fiction, there's this concept of the forces of law and the forces of chaos. It's kind of a medieval thing where you've got like these little European, uh, mostly kind of Christian uh, countries or cultures. And they're surrounded by this big scary world where maybe there's like magic and um, otherworldly creatures, elves and dwarves and whatever out there. And pretty much it's all just scary. And so that's chaos. And what he's done with that concept um, is transform it into something cosmic. Um, and that's where you get this concept of the eternal champion, who's actually 
in Michael Moorcock's stories, um, the overall uh, good, I would say, of the world isn't law or chaos. As such, it's more like the balance between the two. Um, and that makes me think a lot about those ideas of the dynamic quality and the static quality that you get in uh, Robert M. Pizig in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance um, and his follow-up Lila, where he talks a lot about the dynamic quality and the static quality and also, yeah, also other stuff. But before we kind of dig into what is going on in this book, um, and I don't think I'll give a huge synopsis of the plot because other people have done that and they've done it really well. Uh, for example, uh, Blue Stocking, who's the podcaster over on the Steampunk Dollhouse. I really encourage you to listen to that awesome review that she did um, uh, with her take on it. Because her take is um, is very special, very different to mine. Uh, not totally different, but she's reading it from a different perspective. And I love it. That's what made me want to read this. Before I dig into that, I wanted to get a bit nerdy and say, looking just at the title. Okay, so the title of the 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 book the collection is nomad of the time streams and uh it's a time travel book but it's one of the early ones right um there's no time machines in this book uh which is a fun thing interesting thing um as far as you know there's as far as i know i have i've read the first book and the second most of the second book a part of the second book and so far there's no kind of clever machines or anything it's time travel it's the old school way of time travel <laughs> um magic and stuff so, um, but before we get into the details of that, nomads are, this is not a nomad, by the way. Um, there's another book I'm reading right now, uh, for the podcast, which is called Song Lines. And that's by Bruce Chatwin, uh, another British guy. Sorry, guys. Sorry. Um, but I'm British and I like this book. Um, Song Lines is a book about nomads. Um, very, very detailed, in-depth look at nomads and nomadism and uh, the hero of nomad of the time streams a british guy called oswald bastable he's not a nomad um he doesn't have any sheep he uh doesn't keep traveling the same paths although actually yeah he kind of does maybe so maybe there is some truth in this but he is not a seasonal wanderer as a nomad really is i want to quote a little bit um from song lines it's sort of a bit of a scholarly book, I'm afraid. So get ready for some more nerdy stuff later on. No, nomos, nomos is Greek and means pasture. And the nomad is a chief or a um, tribal elder who um, supervises or kind of assigns um, pasture to, uh, to the tribe, I guess, or to like other uh, people, right? So the, the word nomos, the Greek word, that we get nomad from that actually took on the meaning of law. Um, it's so basic to every society that ever existed to make sure that you, you pasture your sheep or your camels or whatever, your animals um, in the right place. And you don't fight with other tribes or other families, you know, uh, clans or whatever. It's so basic that this concept gives us the word for, for law, um, for justice, even, so like the and he lists Bruce Chatwin lists all these other concepts that come from Nomos. So Nemesis apparently because it's the just kind of vengeance that's coming after somebody who did something wrong. Um, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, reminds me um, in the early stories, the earliest stories, Abraham and Lot and those different uh, patriarchs, as they were called, um, they fight. They get into fights over the land, like who is allowed to use the wells, the watering holes and the pasture to put your sheep out. And um, there's another book called Dynamics of World History. <laughs> I told you this was going to get pretty geeky. So Dynamics of World History is by uh, Christopher Dawson, another British guy. Really sorry, a lot of geeks here. Um, we are basically a nation of nerds. And um, in Dynamics of World History, Christopher Dawson says... Um, if I remember right, there's basically two possible um, types of civilization. There's nomads, pastoral people, who are like, we move around with our sheep or whatever animals, and we just follow the seasons. And there's civilized people who settle down, they do their farming, 
and they have to invent all kinds of artificial uh, seasons, right? Um, and these two different types of civilization are like the two poles that every civilization kind of swings between. And if you didn't have them, you'd have to invent them. So um, Christopher Dawson, again, says, um, even in civilized societies, you kind of invent seasons and reasons to do things at a certain time. And even to kind of like go out of normal life into this pattern of wandering and um, discovering new places or like almost pilgrimage to old places. And you'll see why this is relevant when I when I finally get to the, the story of this book. I mean, seriously, how long is it going to take? So Nomad is not really what uh, Oswald Bastable is in this story. He's more like an Odysseus type of figure. Uh, just from the plot. But, you know, the more I think about it, and maybe it's also the Berliner Weisse, but um, there are some kind of crossovers here, and maybe there is some kind of deeper uh, meaning to this. So let me take another sip, and we can edit that out. And um, let me tell you how the plot kind of unfolds. Okay, so this book is a bit different to many of Michael Moorcock's stories in another way. So, for example, in one of his famous books, Stormbringer, that's an Elric story. Uh, you just jump straight into the action. You got a page of uh, history about what is this uh, Melnibony thing. It's this ancient empire of uh, magic and uh, evil and stuff. And there's dragons. Um, probably there's some kind of throne and people play a game with it. You know, back in the day, they had those ideas <laughs> a little while back now. Um the last ruler of the kingdom is Elric, and he's this kind of tortured soul, and off he goes with his magic sword, um, and he's gonna try and save uh, his empire from destruction, and off you go into the into this evil world and hack and slash some bad guys, or even the good guys, probably. It's, uh, it's an Elric story, so probably everybody's gonna die. Nomad of the Time Streams doesn't start like that. It's... Um, it's a little more literary. It starts off with Michael Moorcock's grandpa. He is living in the early 1900s. He's um, probably a British uh, soldier or a kind of mid middle class guy. So, um, you know, he's well off and he has business and he's a bit tired of his job. So he goes off looking for some peace and quiet. And actually the whole, uh, the whole book is about looking for a bit of peace and quiet. It's very English, very British. In fact, the foreword... The, the little quotation goes like this, quote, The war is ceaseless. The most we can hope for are occasional moments of tranquility in the midst of conflict. Lobkowitz. I don't know who Lobkowitz is. Look it up. Could be very interesting. So um, Michael Moorcock's grandpa is also called Michael Moorcock, of course. And he bequeaths this box of papers to the real Michael Moorcock. It's only a story, guys. Um, in 1971... And in this kind of memoir, uh, older Moorcock, Grandpa Moorcock, Grandpappy Moorcock, he goes off to a very remote island, which I think does exist. Um, and it's like a backwater of the British Empire. Uh, I can really relate to this because I spent a lot of my childhood in the backwaters of the, of the now defunct British Empire, more towards Asia. And, um, but in the, in 1903, I think it is, um, that empire is still there. And so there's all this colonial stuff, which kind of draws you in and makes you think, okay, well, is this, what is this, a historical novel or what? A strange figure appears on a ship and he's kind of tossed off of the ship. This strange, uh, wretched looking fellow. Turns out that he's a fellow Brit. Michael Moorcock is famous for not liking Tolkien. And I want to just put my, um, my brilliant theory in right now okay so in Tolkien's books in The Hobbit in The Lord of the Rings those are the famous ones right there's kind of an ordinary character the Hobbit himself right Bilbo Baggins is is kind of a he's basically a middle-class English guy actually he lives in a comfortable house in a nice part of the countryside and he doesn't seem to have anything really to do with himself he just kind of makes tea and reads books and chills out with his friends or even just on his own and uh, in The Lord of the Rings, Frodo is kind of the same. It's kind of like a... And they have a gardener. You know, they have kind of servants, really. It's a little bit 
you know, politically incorrect. And I think Moorcock kind of obviously, yeah, you know, if you listen to him, probably isn't a fan of that kind of stuff. Um, but here, but that, that character is useful because it is the reader's um, experience, right? A little bit, you know, we're, we're comfortable enough to be able to read a book and we can afford it and life is not that hard. And so those characters kind of put the reader into the story. And as time goes by, as the story goes by, um, the reader is kind of meant to identify more with the world than just this character and the character changes. And here, I think you've got a little, uh, I want to be a bit cheeky and say that Moorcock has a little bit of Tolkien in him when he puts all of this British Empire crap in there. And, um, you know, for all that he is in many ways the opposite of Tolkien as a writer, um, there's a little bit of that same quality of, hey, I'm a British guy, I like my peace and quiet, and I like my comfortable little hole in the ground, and that's where I want to be, you know, <laughs> and that's... <laughs> And, and any intelligent person would want that, wouldn't they? Um, and that's certainly the outlook of his hero as well. So he, uh, Moorcock senior grandpa meets, uh, Bastable off the ship and he instantly kind of takes pity on him. There's this kind of British expat sympathy that they have for each other. And so, uh, Moorcock gives him a square meal, gives Bastable a shower, you know, and a shave and a shirt to wear. And um, he kind of slowly winkles out the story from him. There's a parallel uh, with other books as well. There's three days in which um, Bastable gets to tell his story. Um, and at the end of the three days, he vanishes off. Um, so that reminds me a little bit of Patrick Rothfuss' uh, Name of the Wind. Uh, that's meant to be told over three days, three really long days. And the author, the narrator, is supposedly writing all this stuff down. In the case of Oswald Bastable, it's shorthand that Grandpa Moorcock is writing down. And so um, it turns out Bastable is a soldier. Uh, he's an opium addict. He is, you know, a wreck of a man, personally just destroyed um, because of his experiences that left him basically mad. You know, everything um, he's gone through, he's not sure if he even believes it himself if this experience was real or just some kind of dream, was it the drugs um, or is he really crazy? Uh, but he knows he's crazy. He knows that people think he's crazy. So Michael Moorcock senior um, gets to hear the story because he's such a nice guy and, uh, and he's so British. Uh, so he writes down the story and here it is. So um, finally we get to the action uh, Bastable is out there in the Empire in the great days of the 1900s and, you know, keeping the natives in order. Yeah, and so he's a he's a fully uh, card-carrying um, imperial. He, he loves it. He loves being British. He thinks everybody should be British and uh, everyone else should just do what they're told. He's out there in the dark uh, corners of the world India, Nepal, and Tibet, and Bhutan come together in this mysterious place, Kumbhalari, and there's an ancient temple there. There's this temple of the future Buddha, and uh, this is a stereotype already, or it would become a stereotype after Moorcock wrote about it. It's this ancient temple uh, in Tekubenga, which doesn't exist as far as I can see. Uh, Wikipedia doesn't have it. <laughs> Moorcock made it up, which is fair. Um, but it's kind of believable. I mean, it's temple with all kinds of random uh, gods and religions all thrown in together. Um, everything you can think of. <clears throat> um, and Moorcock's hero, um, yeah, Bastable, is going up there to keep the peace. He wants to um, talk with this local leader, the local king, actually, who's also the priest of this temple and stop them from killing all the British guys around there, and, you know, tell them to see reason, you know, get get with the program, man. Come on, obviously, being in the British Empire is way better than what you had before, isn't it? So, he's up there with his Gurkhas, um, those are the totally amazing, I want to say the Indian guys, um, who still get a very unfair treatment from the British uh, establishment, even to this day, actually. So, they are there, 
and they're helping him out. They go and meet this king and immediately everybody's completely creeped out by these weird people living up in the mountains. Um, and they're meant to have all this evil magic and stuff. But uh, so that the story can go on, Bastable is sort of this fearless guy, effectively. And he le- he goes up into the mountains with the king and says, yeah, of course, I'll come and talk with you right in the heartland of your evil demon infested um, <laughs> temple. You know, so let's do that. And off he goes. So he's decided, you know, they're going to see reason, I guess. Um, we're going to threaten them a bit. And we're going to come to some agreement because, you know, we're all sensible people, right? Uh, the king, of course, betrays him, gives him some drugs. And uh, Bastable runs off uh, in a frenzy, uh, trying to escape from this huge temple that he's been uh, housed in, actually sleeping overnight in this temple. And he ends up completely lost in Tekubenga, the temple of the future Buddha. And he uh, runs into the, into the cellar. He gets hopelessly lost. He loses his men finds himself alone, and he has no idea how long he's been wandering in there. Um, but there's these carvings, there's kind of evil-looking sculptures everywhere. It doesn't say what is on those sculptures, but it reminds me of H.P. Lovecraft um, all the way. There's some kind of strange and evil kind of otherworldly figures, like alien creatures or whatever, or just like terrible um, scenes happening on the walls. And he's really creeped out by this stuff. Um, and then there's a sort of flash of light. There's a terrible explosion. He loses his memory. Um, and very interestingly, um, it's at the start of the second story too. And I wonder about the third story. Uh, Bastable has these dreams, like terrible, awful dreams, uh, basically about the type of stuff that happens in a war. You know, horrible stuff. Um, wrong things. Violations of, of people's rights, you know. Uh, human dignity um, sees people getting killed there's rape and all kinds of terrible things it, it, he doesn't describe this in detail but he just says that's what he saw and then he wakes up um, in a ruined temple maybe the same temple uh, he's in a pit and now he can uh, use those sculptures to his advantage he climbs out of the pit and he escapes and he's alone in the jungle <laughs> for the first time um, it'll happen to him again actually he uh He's wandering around, he's lost, and Bastable is then picked up by the Royal Indian Air Service, the RAIS airship. So he's popped into another time stream. Is it another world? Is it an alternate universe? Is it um, just the future? In this future, he finds himself in 1973. There's no airplanes. There's airships, big zeppelins, uh, dirigibles, whatever. Um, and the British Empire has survived up until the 70s across the world. The world is at peace, kind of, and um, World War One never took place, so um, everybody's kind of friends, more or less, and uh, the Brits are just in charge of everything, and everyone's having such a great time. You know, the world's a wonderful place to be, and uh, Bastable kind of gets to grips with this stuff. It's kind of a classic time travel thing. He uh, pretends to have lost his memory, uh, since that's what seems to convince the most people. Uh, being an army officer, you know, quite high ranking, he goes and he works for this air service or the police service. So he doesn't have to actually um, be a soldier anymore. He's like a policeman. And along the way, he meets uh, Mick Jagger. Um, he meets Ronald Reagan. He meets Enoch Powell. But all of these like real historical figures and a bunch of other people, they all um, have the same name and the same kind of uh, some of the same personality traits. Ronald Reagan doesn't come off too well in the story, I want to say. And their roles are totally different in life. So, of course, like history has changed. Right. So uh, Mick Jagger is now um, a low ranking army person. And so is Enoch Powell. He's kind of scary. Um, there's a lot of racists, there's a lot of racism, uh, but because the British Empire is um, even better and bigger than before, racism is kind of okay now, as long as um, it's not too obvious. And um, the first sign you get that all is not well is actually this uh, Reagan character who's a scout leader, actually. He's, you know, just uh, going about his business, but he doesn't like dining with with people from India. 
So he gets into an argument and then he panics when there's a bit of bit of turbulence and stuff. And he pushes the uh, airship captain down a ladder. And then Bastable gets uh, pissed with him because of that and for being a fucking racist. And uh, and he punches out uh, Reagan's uh, lights and he gets he loses his job. Right. So um, uh, and that that incident um, of kind of uh, just rage, outrage, that is what propels all of the adventures, actually, uh, which is pretty interesting. Uh, Moorcock was writing at a time when in Britain, in the UK, we had our first kind of really um, horrible uh, racism and, and crap like that back home in England, because a lot of people came from the West Indies um, and places like that. And suddenly um, there was outrage and all of this moral panic and whatever. Um, and I still remember seeing uh, TV shows that used to um, make fun of racists and try to kind of show how stupid it was to be a racist. And uh, there's some good classic kind of British humor like that. Um, it's really uncomfortable viewing nowadays. Um, but maybe, I don't know, maybe that maybe those shows should make a comeback, actually. <laughs> maybe we should have more of that. Um, so Bastable basically um, finds himself again kind of homeless and jobless and in need of ties in this weird future that he's found himself in. He meets some shady characters who offer him a job. And so he goes aboard another airship, kind of ramshackle airship, with some very weird looking people with odd clothes, um, kind of steampunk guys, basically <laughs> like a, a goth um, character in uh, black, you know, black clothes and lace everywhere. And um, a philosophical looking uh, Polish guy in a turtleneck, uh, who's the captain. <laughs> and um, there's a German count on board. And there's a strange kind of Swedish or, um, you know, kind of like Scandinavian seeming lady called Una Person who turns up in other Moorcock novels. Actually, all these people turn up in other Moorcock novels. Um, in different, totally different situations. Uh, that's the multiverse. And um, turns out they're actually anarchists. And, <laughs> okay, and here's where it goes totally more cock, because they're anarchists, they're on their way to Brunei to um, sort of help out some revolutionaries. And more cock, uh, sorry, Bastable finds out that they are um, anarchists, and immediately he's like, okay, I've got to save the day, stop these guys. It's me against the world, but I don't care because it's all for the British Empire. So off he goes, he gets a gun and he tries to hold up the airship. And of course, you know, someone just comes up behind him and uh, takes the gun. And that's the end of his brilliant uh, revolution there, uh, his brilliant arrest. But um, the joke is on the anarchists because they then get captured by a tougher, bigger anarchist who is Oti Shaw, who is the warlord of the skies. And that's actually the name of this first book. So The Warlord of the Skies is a Chinese, um, Chinese European who has learned the best and maybe the worst of both worlds. He's been educated um, in China and then in Britain for various reasons and then gone back to China because he's seen that the British Empire in 1973 is actually not 100% good. And basically, it's it's just oppressive, like every other empire. And so this uh, Oti Shaw, um, whose name is, of course, a lot like George Bernard Shaw, who was the famous uh, socialist back in the 1930s, uh, 20s, 30s. Oti Shaw is basically building uh, his own empire, his own kind of little army back in China uh, to take back uh, China. You know, he wants to have a revolution and free... Um, the Chinese uh, people, and hopefully everybody will get out of their em 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 imperial um, shackles and so on, which, you know, which which actually seems quite good. And slowly Bastable realizes, wait a minute, this, um, this empire thing is not great. And maybe I'm, uh, you know, I've grown, I've grown to know these people, these anarchists, they don't seem all bad. Okay, to begin with, yeah, they were just all bad. They're criminals, they're uh, outcasts, you know. Um, and their ideas are all wrong. But slowly as he gets to know them and he um, sees these films of the terrible stuff that's happening in the sort of outskirts, the outposts of the empire, which he was basically 
doing himself, right? He was a soldier. He was going out there to put down rebellions, um, but he didn't see it uh, from that angle. He thought he was the good guy. Um, he slowly realizes, hey, wait a minute, that there's got to be a better way of doing this. He joins the rebellion and um, he discovers that this shore, this warlord has got really high technology. He's got heavier than airplanes. He's got like little helicopters, actually, um, or drones. They seem pretty much like helicopter drones, to be honest. And this was in the 1970s that he wrote this, remember? So um, against all odds, they managed to beat the combined power of the British and Russian and French and German empires and buy themselves some time. These, uh, these anarchists under shore, um, Una Person's dad dies. That was the captain of the original anarchist airship that Bastable had joined. And his name was Korzenyovsky, uh, which is the original name of Joseph Conrad, uh, who wrote Heart of Darkness about how bad um, Empire was. So there's a lot of things in this book which are just... Um, I mean, you'd say that they were just satire and they were just like clever writer's tricks but actually when it when it's done as an alternate history like this it's like a steampunk thing you you really get into it i mean like because of course the character is is based on the real character but he's put in this different setting um but there's nothing really sentimental about this it's it's a terrible fight and he dies and you move on it by this point it's become really a philosophical novel along the lines of the dostoevsky uh, brothers Karamazov it's really like they all have their different viewpoints and the action of the story is really kind of giving you the excuse to think about hey wait a minute yeah like is it really a good idea to have just one huge empire taking over the world and okay but then are you justified in having violent uh, rebellions and so on you have a lot of this kind of philosophy but thankfully not too much so they they managed to defeat all the empires and then O.T. Shaw sends Bastable on a secret mission. Uh, for this part, I'm going to need just another sip. Okay, so there's the secret mission. It's Project NFB. And NFB, of course, stands for Nuclear Fission Bomb. Um, Una Person, it's Person, anyway. It's not Person. It's with two S's, right? She is meant to be a physicist. Uh, so you'd kind of hope that she'd figure this out, but she doesn't. It's one of the kind of weak points of the story, maybe. Um, they have the A-bomb. And they're going to drop it on the um, airship factories in Japan. And so even in this other world where history turned out really different, there was no World War I, there was no World War II, there's so-called peace everywhere. Um, there's the American Empire, there's the European Empires, the Japanese, the Chinese guys are not quite so happy about this whole thing, but basically life is good turns out that even this uh, so-called um, utopia ends up with the ultimate uh, destruction and Bastable realizes too late, okay, we're going to bomb these guys, but not just the weapons factories. Everything is going gonna, is gonna to go. And uh, by the time he's realized this, Una Person tries to warn him, like, wait a minute, by my calculations, this thing is going to take out all the cities. And he's like, oh, yes, it's fine, it's fine. But it, he realizes too late, what have I done? Um, I wish this never happened. I wish the airship had never been invented. And there's a blinding white light, of course, and everything is uh, blown away. He loses his, his memory again. And he wakes up uh, floating in the sea uh, next to Hiroshima. And, of course, uh, he's back in a different timeline, in Moorcock's timeline, what we would call the real world, maybe. Or maybe not, maybe. And he gets to Hiroshima. And it's still there. Um, he's back in 1902. And he becomes like a, a drug addict, a drifter. He's totally like shell-shocked by this whole thing. He has PTSD. He is just a mess. And what's worse, nobody believes anything that he says. Because, of course, um, it's impossible. It's it's completely crazy. It's time travel. And that maybe the scariest thing for him is that he died in this time stream. Um, officially, he died at Tekubenga when there was an earthquake. There was a natural disaster. Um, and he, he, he wonders if his corpse is still there, if he goes back and has a look for it. So um, 
the end of the story is, of course, that Moorcock um, loses track of Bastable. Bastable just wanders off. Does he want his story to be out there or does he not? It's not totally clear, but he leaves it in Moorcock's hands and Moorcock sort of tries again and again to get it published and fails. <laughs> it's kind of a joke, I guess, maybe for the kind of writer's experience. Um, and he's wondering what's going to happen in the future now. And the story ends with Moorcock deciding to go off to China in 1910 and see if this Valley of the Morning, which is where the uh, the rebels, the rebel alliance, was building their utopia um, until they, they launched their own Death Star on the world uh, to see if that's really there, to see if this stuff is really true. Yeah, and that's uh, that's the end of the manuscript. And Moorcock, the real Moorcock, writes, Oh, my grandpa... Um, Never managed to get it published. He gave up and he died in the First World War. So I guess like that's the final irony of the story. Wow. When I, you know, when you put it like this, just wow. This is, um, this is the world we live in, you know, and, um, I found out what steampunk is. It's a, it's another way of dealing with the, the world we live in. We live in a scary world. We live in a, in a bad world. And one way to deal with that is to say, look, hey, what if things were different? What if, uh, what if things had turned out differently? And what if things do turn out differently in the future? What if, uh, what if we have the present? What if we actually learn from history? So, um, Bastable is the eternal champion. He's this figure, um, in the stories. He's going to be thrust into more adventures. Um, he's like Holger the Dane in, um, in Poole Anderson's story, Three Hearts and Three Lions. Uh, he comes whenever the circumstances need a hero. Um, and it's his heroism that gets him into trouble. And it's his heroism that kind of, um, in Moorcock stories, it doesn't save the day. It's Moorcock stories are tragic. Um, and that's maybe why they're so real. You know, I'm thinking I really want to, podcast i want to talk about these books as i read them because it's such heavy stuff man (laughs) it's such heavy stuff each one um as you get through it i think it's i need to deal with it and talking uh talking about it uh with you is a good way of doing that um steampunk uh to me is like a lost piece of the jigsaw puzzle when i got this album to review from professor elemental uh, I didn't realize I was going to go down this rabbit hole, um, but I'm glad I did. Um, I used to review CDs back in the day in college, in university. And um, I mean, even then, right, I was off the beaten track. I was giving these 100% five-star reviews for these albums, which just flopped and were just, you know, like uh, so far out of the mainstream that nobody... <laughs> like nobody was talking about them then and still nobody's talking about them now okay so and the stuff that got to number one the stuff that was a hit i was like this is terrible like don't listen to this (laughs) so um i was kind of off the beaten track already at that stage and um i love that this album review that i did um for the prof kind of set me on this train of thinking on this different type of sci-fi that's like it's not very scientific, but actually kind of sometimes is a bit scientific. You know, I mean, it's like the alternate alternative history stuff. You really have to kind of think things through how how the world really works. Um, and the airship stuff is interesting. If you look that up, um, how airships could totally still uh, be in use in different ways. If we had like a slower world, maybe they're very unpredictable. So, you know, not not great, but also you can fill them with uh, helium instead of hydrogen, so they don't blow up all the time. Uh, anyway, um, some of the science is kind of scientific, um, and that this is definitely not uh, fiction in the sense of this is just escape. I mean, this is the real world. And the more you kind of dwell on the choices and the decisions that people make, like I find it really um, impressive that all of the decisions that Bastable makes, you know, his, his heroism... Is he always makes the wrong decision, but it's always kind of like in a, in a good way. He his heart is in the right place, maybe mostly, uh, but he always he always makes a bad decision. He punches this guy out instead of um, biting his tongue and just like 
somehow reporting him to the authorities or something like that. And um, his attempt at stopping the anarchists is like so stupid and uh, so dangerous. You know, shooting, having a gun on an airship is just a bad idea. Um, and all kinds of reasons why that wouldn't work. And then joining um, joining the revolution again, he's kind of like, yeah, this is this is a great idea. He doesn't think things through, um, and he doesn't listen. Um, and so you're kind of going on this journey with him, thinking, like, would I have done this any better? <laughs> um, that's that's a great question to ask <laughs> all the time. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed this um, digression and derail, which it is. Um, into the worlds of steampunk and Michael Moorcock, especially who um, I really hope is having a bit of a comeback. I don't think that any TV series is going to do justice to his books. I read them a little bit when I was a teenager. I wasn't able to grasp fully what they were about (laughs) Um, at the time. I think maybe because I just read them in a very random order. Uh, which I did with all sci-fi books at that time, and I really loved that. Uh, Not all of them, but most of them. And uh, Moorcock's books in particular are hard to read um, out of order, so I would recommend get, um, if you're going to try this, get uh, books like Nomads of Nomad of the Time Streams. Uh, The fan club is actually called Nomads of the Time Stream, so uh, you can be a Nomad of the Time Streams too. Yeah, get a book like that where it puts them together in a nice, neat reading order and you kind of see how he puts stories together and you see how his characters kind of take shape, uh, which is not that. It is a little bit subtle. Um, They're action stories. They're packed with kind of uh, wild things happening, but they are subtle. So um, check this guy out. I feel like I've talked for a long time and now it's uh, about time to read. So... From the Bibliophile Adventures, from the Nomads of the Time Streams, I wish you uh, Godspeed, and may your dirigible, may your, <laughs> may your airship uh, never puncture. Michael from Germany saying over and out. Be continued.